The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. You're a talkative bunch even when only 40% of you are here. (laughs) So uh, I think it's Rochester's last holiday weekend and everybody makes the best of it. So, but I won't do that annoying pastor thing and ask you all to, to squeeze into the front rows. Um, before we get into today's gospel reading, I wanted to say a few things about how the Bible is used in, in church, in our church and then in church in general. Um, first of all, at Artisan, we're, uh, we're pro-Bible, right? We hold the Bible in really high esteem. Um, we talked a few weeks ago about how searching the Scriptures is a means of grace. It's one of the ways that God imparts His grace to us. And we think that the Bible is authoritative. We think it's the way that God speaks to us most clearly and most often. Not the only way, but the most clear way and the most frequent way that God speaks to us. And the Bible is useful for inspiring us in our faith. And sometimes, yes, I think the Bible is useful for correcting us when we have gone astray. And some of you have had that experience where you read the Bible or somebody shares a passage with you and it just sort of cuts right to your heart and the Holy Spirit speaks to you and you think, I need to change that thing that's in my life. But unfortunately... Sometimes the Bible is used in churches, and I, I, I hope and pray that we are not guilty of this, to condemn or to control people. And that's a, it's a very sad thing because, well, just, just like all other forms of evil, it is a distortion of goodness. It's taking that genuine usefulness in correction that, that is present in the Bible and distorting it and twisting it. And changing it into something that is used for harm rather than for good. And that really, it does break my heart. And it's possible that there are people in the room today, and I know there are people in our extended community who have been on the receiving end of that kind of Bible violence. And so I want to say to you that I'm sorry that that happened to you. And I do think that it is a distortion of how the Bible ought to be used. Um, That being said, today's gospel reading, which we're going to talk about fairly in depth, is one of the passages that sometimes people use to attack and to condemn and to control. And so before we look at it, I want to to, uh, have a moment of Humbleness and prayer together. And the, the prayer that I want to pray actually comes from today's psalm reading. And remember, we are, we are using the lectionary in these four weeks that we're talking about Jesus on community. Um, and so there's assigned readings from the Old Testament and the psalms and the New Testament gospels and the epistles, the letters. 
And today's psalm is Psalm 119, uh, verses 33 through 40. And I'd like us all together to make this our prayer. You, you just listen, um, but make this your prayer as I read it, and I will certainly make it mine. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Turn my heart to your decrees and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at vanities. Give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise, which is for those who fear you. Turn away the disgrace that I dread, for your ordinances are good. See, I have longed for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Amen. So what I'd like to do today is go through our gospel passage, and I want to go through it in reverse order. Um, and I, I hope that it will be clear after I've done that why we did it that way. But there's three little sections in this passage that I want to read to you and talk with you about. And they range from fairly simple and, I think, easy to apply to quite complicated and difficult to apply. So we're going to start with Matthew 18, verse 20, which is on page 800 in the Red Bibles that are under your chairs, if you didn't bring one of your own, if you don't own one. And no cheating in reading uh, behind. We're going to start with verse 20 here. Very famous verse. You might have seen this on a plate or something. (laughs) For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. That's Jesus speaking to his disciples. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. That's just a beautiful, simple promise that Jesus made to his disciples. And it makes you feel, just for a minute, we're talking about unity today, it makes you feel like, All we need to accomplish Christian unity is just to get in the same room together and say Jesus. But of course, we know that's not necessarily true. (laughs) But it is a beautiful promise. By by the way, this is a, we'll take this out of the podcast, but I have an Episcopalian friend. (laughs) You know the joke already. he says that, we, that they call themselves whiskey palians. And he says, where two or three are gathered, there's a fifth. <laughs> yeah. So I have Episcopalian friends, so that's okay. I can say that joke. <laughs> where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Beautiful promise. But what I want you to pay attention to this morning is not necessarily just the content of that promise, but the numbers that are contained in it. The two or three, all right? Not that I want to turn this beautiful Bible verse into an episode of Lost um, or, or worse, into a math problem. God forbid we make the Bible into a math problem. But I want you to remember those numbers, two or three, because let me give you a, a really easy, simple, very effective Bible study method. If you are studying the Bible, one of the things that you should always do if you're, if you're really studying it, trying to understand it, is look for re- repetition. And in fact, if you want to get really serious about Bible study, I would recommend either being willing to write and mark your Bible or maybe even 
um, printing out or photocopying a page from the Bible and using a highlighter or uh, shapes or underlining and stuff like that, you mark the words that appear again and again in a passage and then you look at it and you say, why might it be that those words were repeated over and over again? And actually in the passage that we're looking at today, these numbers come up over and over again. So I want you to think about two or three as we go, uh, not forward, but back a little bit. And we're going to go back to verse 18. So if you're using the Red Bible, you have to turn back a page here. 18 and 19 say this, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. So another pretty famous verse, if you've grown up in the church or if you've been in the church very long, you've probably heard that, at least verse 19 uh, that says, if two or three agree about anything, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. And it's, it's just as famous as the two or three gathered in my name, I'm there. Uh, but it might be a little bit more dangerous. You might say it has a little bit more teeth, this particular verse. Because, you see, it's one thing to say that, that Jesus is among us when we gather together. That's kind of a nice friendly thing to say. Jesus is among us. No harm done. But it's another thing that, to say that, that God the Father will give us whatever we want if we agree to ask Him together, which is, I think, sometimes how this verse gets applied. You may have heard a prayer, something like this, Dear God, we talked about it, and we think we'd like a pony. We promise to feed him every day. And before you answer, let me just remind you what you said in Matthew eighteen nineteen, where two or three are praying together and agree upon something on earth that you will do it. We're going to name the pony Sprinkles. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> okay, so we want to be careful that we don't use Christian unity and the, these words of Jesus like a magic wand, a spiritual wand, if you will, that will get us whatever we want. We expect God to do our bidding as long as at least two of us agree to pray together about it. And if he doesn't, well, then the Bible's a lie and we can just chuck the whole thing. See, that's the end game there. It starts out with asking for things from God that really have nothing to do with his will and what you what he wants you to do with your life and what you ought to make of yourself as a, as a Christian. It starts out with asking for stuff that probably has no relevance to your faith or what Jesus might want of you. And then it, it gradually slips into cynicism because those prayers don't get answered the way you expect them to. Um, and, and not healthy doubt, but cynicism. And then it ends with saying, well, God's promises apparently aren't true, and I'm just going to give up on them. But if you look at verse 18, the start of this second little mini passage that we're looking at today, you get a little bit more context. It's more work because it's harder to understand. See, it would be easier just to take verse 19 and put it on a plate, like I said, 
and make that your life verse or something. But it's not fair to do that. Look at verse 18. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, what in the world does that mean? Binding and loosing and... It turns out that binding and loosing were words at that time that were used in a legal sense, in a judicial, judicial sense, if you will. They simply meant forbid and permit. To bind something was to forbid it, to loose it was to, or excuse me, to bind something was to forbid it, to loose it was to permit it. Used in a legal context. And so when Jesus uses those words here, saying if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done by my Father in heaven. It's, it's coming right after that very specific usage of legal terminology. But why would Jesus say that? The, the question that you would, you would be asking if you're thinking inductively about this is, what are his disciples going to be binding and loosing? What is the legal context here that makes these words make sense? And so, of course, to understand that, we have to go back even further in the passage. And so, look back to verse 15. To see what's going on here. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's some more legal terminology for you. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Gentiles and tax collectors being two groups of people who were not very highly respected by uh, the Jewish people of that day, which of course is the people that Jesus was talking to. So again, for the third time now, we've seen that usage of the numbers two or three. And so you see how they, they, they're all drawn together by this one thread. All three of the little passages we looked at just now are connected by that, not to mention they're next to each other. But if that were enough reason for you not to pull out one verse and just use it by itself, you have this clue, the two or three repetition throughout the passage. And so all of these things... Jesus being among us when we gather together in his name. God the Father doing whatever two or three of us ask when we pray together and agree upon it. And this kind of interesting, fairly specific process for how to deal with a response to sin. Um, They all make up one passage. They all go together. So you have to think of them as a whole. It's not just that God is going to grant us three wishes if we can ever agree to ask for. It's that the community of faith is the steward of his authority. Okay? You can't just kind of be off on your own. And what gives the community that authority? Well, it's the presence of Jesus among it. It's not just people who come together and make rules. Jesus is among you. 
And so when you agree on something, that's binding. That, that counts for something. Now that being said, we do need to talk about this, the beginning of this passage, the third part that we read. Um, because those last few verses that we've looked at, 15 through 17, I think make up one of the most easily abused and frequently abused passages in the Bible. There's some problems and pitfalls you have to look at if you're going to apply this teaching of Jesus about reproving another who sins, is the the heading that I have in this Bible. See, the problems and pitfalls are especially problematic when a ragtag bunch of imperfect people like us try to go about putting it into practice. So, allow me, if you will, to humbly suggest a few questions, some guidelines for how to read this passage. Here are some questions that you need to ask in order to do a careful reading of those two verses which talk about what to do in the case of sin in the community. The first question is this, and if I were a bullet point kind of pastor who put outlines in the bulletin for you, this would be the bullet points, okay? So you have a, we are, we're more of an uh, open canvas kind of note-taking church. There's a big blank spot on the back of your bulletin, but if you ever want to write anything there to remind yourself what's going on, you can certainly do that. The first question is this. Who is this process directed toward? Okay. Well, it's, it's easy to find that out. Just read the first few words of the passage. If another member of the church, there you go, there's your answer. It's another member of the church. Now, if you brought your own Bible, you may have a different word there. Anybody have a, their own Bible that has a different word at the beginning of this passage? Your brother. That, that's the literal translation of the Greek word in this passage, which is Adelphos, brother. You know, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, Adelphos is brother. Hey, Adelphos. Um, Uh, and our translation, in, in an aim to be uh, non-exclusive in its use of gender terms, has translated this to be, if another member of the church. Either way, it means the same thing. This process is for somebody who is within the community. So you're not going to go find somebody who's, I don't know, pick your favorite sin to complain about, doing that, out on the street and say, according to Matthew 18, I am confronting you about your sin. And if you don't listen to me, I'm going to bring two or three other people over here, and we're going to confront you about it. And if you don't listen to them, we're going to take you into our church. They're nice. If you don't listen to them, you're out. Right? It's for people within the community. That's the first part that you have to realize about this if you're going to do a careful reading of this text. The second question that I want you to ask if you're going to do a careful reading of this text is why? Are you starting this process? What happened? Well, read on, dear friends. If another member of the church or a brother does what? What's the next word? Sins. But what's the next words after that? Against you. Okay. So we're narrowing it down a little bit more. We can't do that same thing like... I can't go over to, I shouldn't pick a name, Dan, 
and say, Dan, you are, your car costs too much. You are not being a good steward of the money that God gave you. You shouldn't drive fancy German cars if you're a real Christian. And when you tell me what you should tell me if I ever do that, <laughs> not repeatable in the, uh, from this stage, I'm going to say, no, we're going to get, t- I'm going to get two or three others. We're going to come over here. And if you don't listen to them, Sunday morning, you are right up here. And we're talking to you about your Volkswagen. Right? If another member of the church sins against you, you have the right to, to begin this process. Otherwise, I hesitate, hesitate to say mind your own business. Because we do want to be involved in each other's lives. And in the context of right Christian relationships, there is a place and a time for me to say something like that to you, Dan. Maybe if it was a Lamborghini instead of a Volkswagen. Maybe if we were really close friends and we had talked before about wanting to be good stewards of the money that God gave us. There's even a time and a place to share Scripture with each other and say, I have to be honest with you, what I see going on in your life does not match up with the calling that God has placed on our lives. But that is not the same as starting this Matthew 18 process every time you see somebody sin. Okay? So sometimes you want to mind your own business. It requires discernment, like everything else. Next question. What is the proper motive for setting this process in motion? Why would you do this? What, what, is, the, what is the end goal that you have in mind? Right? And you can't quite get that just by reading the next words in this passage. I'll put this down for just a minute. And suggest to you that the motive for initiating this very biblical, very clear unusually specific process that Jesus lays out is for someone's correction and edification. In other words, you want to see God's best take root as a reality in their life. Here's the way that it sometimes is used. We're going to start the Matthew 18 process, all capital letters, because we are getting ready to excommunicate you from our church. We know how the process ends. It ends with treating somebody like a Gentile or a tax collector, which we take to mean casting them out of our religious gathering. And so we're going to start this process for you, and if you don't shape up, that's the end game. Because really, we don't want your kind around here. And this is where you get into that very dangerous territory of using the Bible to condemn and to harm and to control rather than using the Bible to correct or to inspire. And so your motive for initiating this kind of process is to 
bring someone into right relationship with God and with you. Remember, it's the brother or the member who sins against you that we're talking about here. And if you are going, if you, if you feel like you need to have this, start this process, have this conversation with somebody, I would like to ask you to take a day or two or a week and think and pray and try to be as honest as you can with yourself about why you want to do that. Because this process is designed to restore relationships, not break them. Taken to its full measure, it does possibly result in a broken relationship. But that's not why you start it. Am I being clear enough? Here's another question. If you want to read this passage carefully, and I now have more questions than probably words in the passage. What does tell it to the church mean? Now, if you're reading the New Revised Standard Version, which is the Red Bible, you have seen the, the word church in this passage twice. At the beginning, you see if another member of the church, now remember we talked about that being a translation of the word brother, so church is not actually in that word in the original language. And then at the end of this process, you have if the member refuses to listen to the, the two or three people, you tell it to the church. What does that mean? Well, I think the fact that the word church is kind of a difficult word to, to translate from the New Testament ought to mean that we have a little bit of leeway with how we interpret this, okay? The word church, uh, in this case, is ecclesia. We talked about this maybe two or three months ago, if you were here, when we were in the series called What is the Church? Remember the first sermon of that series was this really long, boring one about all the different Greek words that mean church? The most common one is ecclesia, which simply means gathering. So it's the gathering of people. So you're going to tell it to the gathering of the people in one way or another. I don't think Jesus is uh, ultra-specific about how that happens. In some contexts, that would mean dragging Dan up here and, and making him confess in front of the whole body. Um, I, I think in our context, it might be more likely to mean tell it to the, the church's leadership body. We have a, an elected leadership team. Um, but thankfully, we haven't really gotten to that point with anybody quite yet in, this, in, our, in our short life together as a church. Uh, and so, to be perfectly honest with you, we, don't, we haven't laid this out w- with a whole lot of specificity. And I think that that's okay, because tell it to the church could mean a, a, a number of different things. It might be a small group that you're part of. So instead of just two or three people talking, now you've got ten people, and you're really trying to do this in a loving and restorative way. Um, but it, I don't think it means drag them up here on a Sunday morning and make them confess their automotive sins. <laughs> And then the last question, this is the one I think is actually probably the most interesting to me personally. How do you apply that last resort measure? What does Jesus say if they won't listen to you and they won't listen to the two or three and they won't listen to the whole gathering? What do you do? Let such a one be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. As I said before, Gentiles were, the non-Jews were spiritually unclean and could not be part of the community. Tax collectors, unlike today, were thieves. Um, who, who were supposed to collect a dollar and collected four or ten. 
And they had a spear, so you couldn't say no. That being said, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Well, the truth is he didn't have a whole lot of interaction with Gentiles. Had some. But by reading the entire New Testament, we we know that Jesus died for the Gentiles. For the Jews as well, but for all the people. Christ's death and resurrection opened the doors for all the nations to know the one true God. So, we don't get to treat people terribly at the end of this process just because Jesus says treat them like Gentiles. Now, what about the tax collectors? Well, interestingly enough, Jesus had a lot of contact with tax collectors. Every day, it seems like he was preaching a sermon telling the tax collectors where they were going and why, how many sins they had committed, how they were separated from God, Oh, no, wait. (laughs) That was the religious people he was talking to. (laughs) The tax collectors were at the parties that Jesus threw. (laughs) And people thought Jesus was a drunkard because of it. So, when Jesus says, and I, I don't mean to be flippant about what can ultimately be a very serious and sometimes painful process, But when this process has run its course and there's still no reconciliation and you need to to break fellowship, I do think that's the end game there, the breaking of fellowship. God let it never happen to anyone here, but that's what I think the passage is talking about. Let's Let's not lie about what Jesus is saying. However, that breaking of fellowship does not mean that we suddenly get to say these people are automatically separated from God forever or they are never welcome in our midst again, or they are the biggest sinners we ever met, or they have no place in any church ever, on and on and on. Let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, the Gentiles for whom I am a few chapters away from giving my life, and the tax collectors with whom I spend lots of time trying to draw them closer to God, ever drawing them back to God. And so with all those questions having been answered, I would suggest to you that this passage, Matthew 18, is not firstly and foremost about sin, but that it's actually about unity. Now, of course, it is about sin. In the passage, it's in the first verse, if another member of the church sins against you. But it seems to me that the the sin that ultimately results in the expulsion from community, should it get to that point, is a failure to be reconciled after you've sinned against someone else. See, we make this passage all about that initial sin of sinning against somebody. When I really think the, the gravest sin implied in the passage is the sin of being unwilling and too proud to admit that you have done wrong and to be reconciled to each other. It's that sin that results in the breaking of fellowship, not the initial sin. So, and my point when I say that 
it's not firstly about sin is, I mean, give me a break. We are all sinners. We are a whole entire community of sinners. You know, you can't go 25 seconds without seeing somebody in the room sinning in some way or another. I saw you just a minute ago. You saw me just a minute ago. So I don't think Matthew 18 is intended to give us three easy steps toward judgment, passing judgment. I think it's intended to give us a structure for reconciliation when we harm each other. And so in these last two or three minutes, let me tell you what I think that unity actually means. After all, the sermon is titled, Jesus on Unity. I don't think that unity means that we all agree all the time. Unity doesn't mean always agreeing with each other. As a matter of fact, if we always agreed with each other about everything, there would never have to be a sermon about unity in the church. We would already have it, and it wouldn't be a problem. Unity means staying together as a body in spite of those differences. In spite of the fact that we may not agree about how much is too much to spend on a car. Or we may have an academic disagreement about whether the Apostle Paul actually wrote the book of Ephesians or not. Or we may have a moral disagreement about hot-button issues. Poverty, welfare, homosexuality, abortion. Things that we feel really passionately about. Unity, if we are going to accomplish it, will require us to stay together as a body of believers even when we disagree. Even when we disagree about things that we think are really important. And that is the culture that we are trying to to set up and protect here at Artisan Church. And that's why, for example, if you've visited our website, you will not find a list of doctrines, the what we believe thing that you find on a lot of church websites. My not-so-humble opinion about those lists is that they are designed to tell visitors in advance whether or not they're going to fit in whether or not they're going to agree with everybody when they walk in the door, whether they're likely to have a difficult conversation with someone about anything ever. And they're furthermore intended to weed out certain types of people and, and ensure that they never visit the church. That's my not-so-humble opinion about those lists. We're not going to participate in that, and so you won't find those lists on our website. You find a lot of stuff about what we do believe, You find a connection to our family of churches, and you can go through that and find out what the big we believes. But we're just not going to make it easy for you to build a wall between us and anybody else. We're not going to participate in that. Because unity means staying together as a body in spite of our differences. 
And I, I love when somebody comes to Artisan and gets connected and they have, they have a different perspective on something than I do. You know, some of my best friends are Calvinists. <laughs> um, that's a little uh, church inside baseball, but do you know what I mean? Like, I love the fact that we have a community of faith here where, where people can disagree with anyone, even the pastor, about some of that boundary stuff. Do you remember when we were talking about the church a, a few weeks ago? I had that graphic up there with um, the circle and then a the little circle in the middle. The center of that circle represented and represents the most important truths of our faith. Read the Apostles' Creed. That's in the middle. And then there's all this kind of gray area, and then there's the boundary around the edge, right? And we are not going to break fellowship about things on the edge. When it comes to what we believe, if we had a disagreement about the stuff in the middle... That, that wouldn't require us to, to break fellowship necessarily, but it would certainly be an, a, an acceptable reason for us to go our separate ways if it came to that. But not the stuff on the edge. Now, I know we have disagreements about what's actually in the middle and what's actually on the edge. Those are the conversations we have to have. You know, you could, you could split hairs to this ad infinitum, but the general truth is the same. We want to be gathered in unity around the center of our faith. Enjoying the presence of our Lord Jesus in our midst. Exercising His authority in, in ways that are loving and restorative. And being together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you who prayed for the unity of your disciples, we pray that we might always live up to that prayer that you made. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be among us, guiding us, teaching us, correcting us, drawing us closer to Your will. And maybe most importantly, when we think about the topic of the day, providing that buffer of grace between us when we are at odds with one another. We humbly pray that Your Word would be our guide. That we would be drawn in unity around the core of our faith in You, Lord. And that in all things, we would work together for the good of Your kingdom on earth as it's being done in heaven. We pray these things in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, taking communion in the context of, and in the light of what we've just talked about, I think is a, a wonderful experience. And I invite you to, to respond at the table 
as God leads you. And you know, if you've been here a lot, the way that I talk about this, I talk about communion as an act of remembrance of Christ's death and resurrection. And I talk about it as food for your souls. The sacrament of spiritual sustenance. And we always talk about it as an act of unity with each other, with all the Christians around town and around the world and throughout history. This sacrament, more than any other, ties us together. And so as you're taking communion, we have the two stations there with bread and wine and juice. And so you'll probably be next to somebody else who's taking communion. And what I'd like you to do is remind yourself as you're tearing the bread and dipping it in the cup that you are unified with the brother or sister standing next to you in spite of the fact that there's no possible way that you agree about everything. So maybe today, especially focus on that third part that I always say when I welcome you to the communion table. Do this as an act of unity with each other and with others. Even those, yes, even those who won't come to this church because they disagree with something. (laughs) And whose church you might not go to because you disagree with something. Because like that old song says, we are one in the Spirit. (laughs) So if you are seeking to follow Jesus in this place, you are seeking to do it alongside those in the other seats. And you are welcome to participate in communion. If you are not a Christian, if you're here... um, exploring faith, trying to figure things out. This probably isn't the best thing for you right now, and you're more than welcome to kind of sit and pray and meditate. We won't look at you funny. Um, And you need to respond however God is speaking to your heart. Okay? So come as He leads you, and uh, I'll just remind parents, if you have children in our classroom, to go and pick them up. They can take communion with you if you'd like, uh, or you can get them right after you're done if you prefer. Uh, But let's continue to worship God together.